Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I first discovered them roughly 14 months ago. They were an up-and-coming library at the time, and since then they have built out a very robust library. Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said to me, Stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis, and I couldn't agree more. This episode features Jillian Jacquard Murish. Jillian is the co-founder and CEO of Peer Asset Management. Peer is an alternative asset manager that runs a alternative credit fund that looks to achieve satisfactory yields by investing in non-bank consumer, small business, and real estate loans. During the episode, we discuss BNPL, which is short for Buy Now, Pay Later. I turned to Stream's library to help me better understand a firm, a BNPL lender. According to the transcript, a firm has a strong tech side that is differentiated compared to other companies, such as Afterpay and Klarna. In discussing what makes that different, the expert said a firm has a pretty strong engineering culture in general, and one of the things they do really well is have their own system of record. A firm has no core processor outside itself. It's all fully vertically integrated from the ground up. That allows a firm to have a fair amount of flexibility around developing new products, but also allows very, very good signal coming out of the data. So if that tidbit interests you or you're looking for insights to companies, I encourage you to please see streamrg.com where you can sign up for a 14-day trial and get a more robust understanding of a firm or any other company you are interested in. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. So Jillian, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm so good. How are you? Uh, This is now what, take three or take four? I'm not sure. <laughs> one, one of the two, yeah, three or four, I think. Eventually, it's this podcast will actually happen. It will. I think this is the take. It, I think yes. this is the one. So far, so good. Here we are. We've done it. <laughs> Indeed. We've, we've, uh, we've probably done a couple podcasts in total now trying to do one podcast. So Too we'll see funny. if this one can actually be the one that goes to, to uh, release or not. I hope. Yeah. I hope. So let's see. So how was your weekend? Uh, my weekend was okay. We were going to record uh, on the day that uh, a Curate released results that sent the stock down 30%, and I needed to get my mind correct. Uh, and you didn't have a particularly great week either, so uh, we no. rain-checked that. Were you able to uh, have a decent weekend? I was. You know, a lot of family time. Uh, we uh, got to a one-year-old's birthday party. There you go. Uh, spent, yeah, spent part of the day at the beach. So, yeah, not too bad. Can't complain. How was yours? Uh, mine was okay. I, I also had a children's birthday party, actually, but I showed up a little bit turnt, out, uh, turnt up. Uh, I had had uh, an, uh, one or two IPAs and a Long Island iced tea um, before <laughs> I went. 
So oh, too funny. I told my wife that you were I, the clown. You were the entertainment. Uh, no, I was not the entertainment. I, I ended up actually behaving myself quite a bit. I threw a, a football with my kid and then I was a hero because uh, it was on the beach and the kids were dropping balls onto the beach and I was saving them. But uh, I did have to Uber. I, I thought that <laughs> I would drive and be there on time. And the day the day changed. I hear you. Can can turn in a flash. Well, smart, smart to Uber. Yes, and you know, I uh, I don't know. I, I had a I had a long week. Sometimes you got to blow off some steam, you know. I hear you. Do you guys do that in California, or do you just go for like long walks and get better looking? <laughs> oh, you're so funny. I was gonna say for me, you know, my equivalent is like a jog on the beach yep. or going hiking. <laughs> yeah, that makes a very Manhattan I, Beach answer. <laughs> It is. You know, I do enjoy a nice glass of red wine in the evening sometimes. So I, I can't pretend that I'm all uh, health and high and mighty over here. I I can uh, partake too after a hard week. Y'all get stressed and eat kale. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how we do it on the East Coast. Oh, so funny. I do have a cat kale salad waiting for me in the fridge for lunch. So There you go. Yes. Too funny. Um, too funny. Kale is my least favorite of the, the lettuce derivatives, but it's also the healthiest. <laughs> You know, I prefer spinach, and yeah. I think spinach is, is up there with nutrition. So my uh, my daughter, she's nine months old, her new favorite breakfast, and you're going to just die, is a spinach smoothie. Spinach, I get that. blueberries, bananas, and she loves it. So she's going um, full full California with me, I guess. Now, we used to do that for our first. My, my first had like crazy pureed meals, and it was all beautiful. And then the second started to eat baby food. And then the third, I think he just ate whatever he was given. He just started with pizza. That's right. right. That's the third. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to figure out how to chew it without teeth. We don't care. We're not making anything exactly. special. <laughs> exactly. How's Too being bad. a mom? Well, uh, oh, it's the best. I mean, it's my favorite job I've ever had. She is the greatest joy. Her name's Margot. She's nine months old. And uh, it actually gets better every day. You know, people told me that I was like mourning the loss of my one month old, my two month old. I'm like, oh, she's never going to be this small again. These are the best days. And it gets more fun every day. Um, you know, this morning we we went out for a walk and, you know, she's obsessed with birds. She just looks up at the sky, hears a caw and just, you know, searches the sky and follows them and tracks them. And um, it's just so fun to see her or see the world through her eyes, you know, just discovering everything and loving it. And um, it's the best. Does uh, does she like construction at all? loves. So we have a ton of construction going on in the neighborhood, which is fantastic, obviously revitalization, you know, making the neighborhood look nicer. And there's huge tractors, there's, you know, big diggers. And, um, you know, we sat her on one yesterday and she just loves it. So yeah, yeah we tease, we're like, we're going to have a construction birthday party for her in the coming months. When, um, when my, f let's see, I guess my first, so we were having our second, we lived in Lincoln Park in Chicago and, um, mm. like on our block six buildings got torn down so he can wow. watch and um there's like these these videos these 20 trucks videos they're fantastic it's some guy in scottsdale puts them together he's like super nerd sorry if you listen dude i'm not trying to take shots at you <laughs> but also it is kind of nerdy and he's got like these uh like all these songs for different trucks and they're fantastic mm. they're great songs uh so that what's was, the name of this so 20 trucks 20 trucks. Okay, I've got to look it up. It's so now up to like 30 trucks, but you don't change your brand mm -hmm. once you're, you know, deep in 20 trucks. It's great stuff. But Love it. Good intel. Thank you. You're welcome. 
this is this is the hard hitting reporting that people come here for. Yeah, exactly. Learning all the kid shows Indeed. to pump your children with. Indeed. So uh, I, I guess how do you want to start this on the on the fourth time? We'll just we'll say how, what do you do, and uh, where are you located, and then we'll take it from there. That's a great place to start. So I think everyone's gathered. Uh, I'm in Manhattan Beach. It's a town in Los Angeles. Um, you know, we have our office here. My home is here. Uh, my business partner, Connor New, you know, his house is here. So it turned out to be just the right spot to run the company. Um, we started this firm about five years ago. And the whole impetus was to bring fixed income yield to investors uh, when really the environment just, you know, hasn't been producing any for investors for a, a number of years. Uh, so the way that we do it is by investing in alternative credit, which we define as all non-bank lending, where the loan sizes are under $250,000. So for a bank, I'm sure you know, it's really expensive for a bank to make a loan. And it's not profitable for a bank to make a $100,000 loan. Um, I think you know the last stat I heard was that it costs about $12,000 for a bank to originate one loan hmm. and to make the loan with compliance costs and headcount and brick and mortar shops, et cetera. And so really this segment of small dollar lending has really been abandoned by banks. So imagine if you're a small business and you wanna go buy a new tractor, speaking of construction, yeah, uh, you want to go buy a new tractor, how are you gonna finance that $100,000 tractor? You have to go to a non-bank lender to get a loan. And, and it doesn't mean you're not bankable. You know, you may have a 750 FICO and you have great business income, but you know, they're just banks won't make those loans. So this whole ecosystem of non-bank lenders popped up to serve all of these segments. And it's hundreds and hundreds of lenders, everything from that small equipment lender all the way to these large behemoths that originate loans through the internet. So alternative credit kind of covers that whole ecosystem, whether it's offline equipment, small lenders, all the way to a billion dollar uh, online originator like Lending Club or Prosper or those names that you've heard of. Um, so we started a firm that invests in that corner of the world. It's a niche corner. Um, there's lots of ways to invest in it. And we've really found two strategies uh, that have served kind of this, you know, this corner and have, have made our LPs quite happy. And, you know, the two things that we really focus on are buying loans in the secondary market. So say that equipment lender makes a bunch of loans, they have them on their balance sheet and they're growing really quickly and they need to offload some loans off their balance sheet. They would call us and we would buy them. Uh, maybe it's a fund manager in New York that has aggregated a pool of $100 million, real estate, $100 million of real estate loans and they need some liquidity to go work on this next deal. They would call us and we could buy loans from them. Um, so there's a wide variety of, of secondary market opportunities that present themselves. And we are there as that liquidity provider with a bid to buy those loans quickly and efficiently. Um, and then the second strategy is where we actually go directly to the loan originator and we write a line of credit for them. So it, again, going back to the equipment lender, we will give them a $10 million credit facility to go make uh, equipment loans. And so those are both of our trading strategies. They're all kind of under one roof of a special opportunity strategy. And the common theme between both of those is that we are shortening duration while increasing yield. And we can shorten duration by buying portfolios in the secondary market. The loans are well seasoned. Maybe it's a 12 month portfolio. We're six months in and we're buying it uh, with six months left. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, again, from an investor standpoint, how do you decrease duration risk in a rising interest rate environment? 
you know, by going into the secondary market in this space. So, you know, sorry, that was a long-winded answer no, no, what we good. do, but I could, no, I could talk about the strategy for an hour straight. Well, that's good because we're about to do that. Um, yeah. The uh, So when I hear you say like um, shortened duration, uh, offer the same or a higher yield than like typical, uh, typically you could find in the credit markets. And then I hear you say non-bank lending. The uh, most, like the biggest flag that comes up for me is are these riskier loans like why why does this opportunity exist without uh accepting more credit risk yeah great question so i think you know i touched on briefly earlier the whole regulatory and compliance environment of a bank that makes it very expensive for a bank to make a loan so if it costs a bank twelve thousand dollars to make a loan they're not making a fifty thousand dollar loan it's just not profitable there's not enough interest in it um, and so simply from a size perspective, um, you know, a bunch of borrowers who want to borrow less than $250,000 are precluded from going to the banking system. So you can have very bankable prime borrowers um, utilizing non-bank lenders. Um, I'll give you a great example. Yeah. So for, for example, you're going in and you're getting dental veneers put on. So like fake teeth that make your mouth look nice. And it costs $20,000 and you have $220,000 of income, a 780 FICO, and you walk into your uh, dentist's office and, um, you know, you sign up and you get your teeth done. And there's an iPad there that says, hey, would you like to finance this and pay it over 12 months instead of all up front? You might go, oh, you know, sure. Sounds sounds good. No problem. Um, and you look at it and there's actually a 0% interest rate. Okay, why would I pay it all up front? Money, time value of money here. I'd rather pay it over time. I'm in. You sign up for that loan. So what does that look like on the back end to the alternative lender who made you that loan? You're going, well, that's not interesting. You're making 0%. Why would a lender want to give you that loan? Yeah. They're not. They're not. So the lender is going to the dentist. The dentist charge, or the, it costs the dentist $5,000 to put in your veneer, veneers. They're charging you 20000 this lender said, hey, dentist, let me put an iPad in your office. I will pay you eighteen or $16,000 up front. Maybe it's 16. I'll pay you $16,000 up front right now. And um, let me make a $20,000 loan to your patient. I'll just pay you today. And you don't, you don't have to have risk that anyone's going to pay you or not. And the dentist says, absolutely, I'd love to have you do this because you know what? I lose uh, a few a few patients every other week because they see the price tag and they walk out of the consult and they don't um, get their veneers. So you know, I'd rather take sixteen thousand and capture those clients than than take twenty. Thank you, lender. And by so the way, the I don't have is, to manage the credit risk. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there is a whole set of doctor and dentist organizations that are giving loans off their own balance sheet and managing that process, and it's an antiquated nightmare. So this is just, is for some dentists you identified, this is just a solution where they had already been doing this off balance sheet and they're just offloading the risk, they're offloading the processing and all like the two employees they have doing it. Um, and so if you see as, a, as the alternative lender here, you're making a loan for $20,000, but your cost that you, your dollars that are in is only 16,000. So you already have this built-in first loss and this interest um, that's there to make it worth your while to lend. So we uh, actually had provided a credit facility to this alternative lender, as an example, I won't say their name because I, you know, I haven't cleared it with them to talk about it publicly, but we provided them a $15 million credit facility. They went out and made a bunch of loans to these individuals and these individuals you know, pay off their loan over time. 
And it's been a fantastic you know, return for us and return for the lender, um, kind of a big win-win all around. And so we're able to get double-digit yields um, you know, where we, you know, we try to target double digit yields for some, you know, for those sorts of investments. Yeah. Are you then, uh, using a line of credit to fund the line of credit that you're extending? You know, we don't, so we don't use any leverage. We, um, we take LP capital and we invest it in transactions like this. Um, and we, but we don't use any leverage. We don't have a bank facility. Um, you know, I think as I shared, we have really short duration investments. So, you know, that that duration was 12 months. Um, other, you know, if we buy loan portfolios, sometimes they only have three months duration left on them. And so imagine trying to put leverage on an asset base that's cycling that fast yeah. where your collateral is switching. You know, we have we buy pools of thousands and thousands of loans like these small consumer loans where maybe there's only one hundred dollars of principal left. Imagine that changing borrowing base for a credit facility. It would just be really cumbersome and pretty expensive. Yeah. Like any sort of financing option for this for us would be at like L plus six or seven. And okay. you know, that that's decent. You know, we could still produce additional yield off of that because there is room between, you know, what we target and what, what we would be paying. But again, like we're just not interested in the additional risk of, of um, taking on leverage. And um, so we just use equity capital. Yeah. That makes sense. And and you said you're lending out to this company at I assume it's fixed and you said double digit return. So that's a Yes. It's pretty good. So we you know, we we you know, we are now instituting a SOFR floor. So SOFR is the new LIBOR for those who've been paying attention to the Yeah, that's right, because LIBOR really got nerdy. gamed, right? LIBOR did. Yeah. So now it's SOFR. And we use a SOFR floor for all of our deals now, uh, when we're writing credit facilities. And um, you know, if we're in a rising interest rate environment, we think that it makes sense to to have a floating rate. I mean, again, the transactions that we're getting into are such short in duration that, you know, at max, we would be exposed to some sort of interest rate issue for six months or a year. Whereas, um, you know, other folks who are writing or entering into three or five or seven year long transactions, which is a lot of the direct lending space, you know, those folks are really subject to interest rate risk, um, you know, and in this environment that, you know, it's an interesting game to, to try to figure out, you know, I'm, I, I don't claim that I, I know what's going to happen with, with rates. I, I know there's only one way for them to go. Ah, so. they could go negative. <laughs> don't be fooled. Who knows? Yeah, I've learned know. enough you, over my, uh, that, my life on this planet to know I have no idea what is possible. Things I never thought right? was possible, uh, actually right? materialize. So who knows? Right? Um, I, know. I do tend to agree with you. Uh, logic would would dictate <laughs> that they should only have one way to go, but uh, I'm not sure logic applies here. Um, Again, who knows? Yeah. So if it, why it seems to me that that lending base is a good lending base, right? You're you're serving in this hypothetical high income earning people with a with the access to credit to get a surgery that they value. And they're probably not going to default because, uh, I mean, this this hypothetical person's probably not looking to really like tank their credit. I'm sure that there are defaults, but as a as a group, I would think these loans are fairly decently performing. Is the interest rate as high as it is because of the size of the borrower that you're lending to? Like, why why is that interest rate uh, set appropriately? Yeah. So for that uh, specific example. If you remember that, you know, there's two borrowers here, right? So there's the borrower, which is the actual end consumer who's getting the veneers. Yeah. And that person is seeing a 0% interest rate. 
they're charged $20,000 for the veneer. They either pay 20K today or they pay 20K over 10 months. So they don't care. Um, it's the underlying uh, loan originator who's making all those loans. So to clarify, we are not in the business of going and making these individual loans. No, you're, loans. you're lending there's to the originator. There's a whole company. Yep, there's a whole company that does that. But if the originator so the question, is discounting something 30% and then you're lending at 19, their levered IRR is great. Exactly. Right. And then I also, you know, yeah, and you look at, so these operating businesses, th- this was my background. So, you know, we haven't done backgrounds of who I am, but, you know, been running Peer for five years. And before this, I built and ran the capital markets practice at an online real estate lender. And when I was in that seat, uh, running an alternative lending company, you know, is a specialty finance business. At the end of the day, that's all it is. People can try to claim that they're running a tech company and blah, blah, blah. Yes, that's important. But at the heart of what you're doing, you're lending out money, you're trying to recoup that money. And that's how you make your revenue and your profit is by being a specialty finance lender. This may sound like a really stupid question, but I just want to make sure that we're having the same conversation. Uh, What's your definition of specialty finance? Oh, man. Um, Because it's broad, right? So like like what you're talking about, just non-banking credit extension uh, yeah, for... That's all in specialty finance. Okay. I just want to make sure because um, you know, some of the listeners don't, you know, I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page as the conversation goes, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I, well, I, I was just making the distinction that a lot of companies that serve financial products through the internet try to shun their finance or specialty finance title because all they want is a technology <laughs> multiple yeah. in running their business. Yeah. And so for them to, we're not lady. a specialty finance company. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the business model that I was referring to and talking about with the dentist example is buy now, pay later for service businesses. Huh. You know, people don't think of their veneers as a product. Yeah. Um, it's a service. And, um, and that's a huge new, you know, it's not a new industry, but it's really starting to develop and become more mature is Buy now, pay later for services. Um, And those businesses are often using the internet. They're using technology to price your risk really quickly and price that loan and approve you or deny you. And they want to be called a tech company. And there is a big tech component. But again, at the heart of what they do, they lend money, there's defaults, they get their profit. And that to me is a specialty finance business. Like specialty finance is a hard uh, definition that I won't try to make, but like even within banks, there's specialty finance groups that are doing like anything that's not traditional at a bank can even be specialty finance. Like there's the group at PacWest that does, um, you know, aircraft leasing, you know, could be under their specialty finance arm. My only thing, the only definition I was trying to say is that these tech companies are also finance companies. Yeah. At the end of the day. I agree with that. And I feel like such an idiot that I didn't make uh, that connection that this particular product was just buy now, pay later for dental veneers. When it's said that way, it's like it's I just I always think of it as like a zero percent installment loan, like even buy now, pay later. I just I don't even consider buy now, pay later. I just view it as lending. But uh, I'm you know, that's not what the market says. But, you know, everybody's got to figure out how to market. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, buy now, pay later. You're not taking a loan. You know, there's a lot of um, consumer, uh, you know, rejection or uh, it's a hot button to be taking on loans or leverage or using credit cards after the financial crisis, especially in the millennial generation. Like there is a decent aversion to debt. And so buy now, pay later was beautiful marketing to get adoption from consumers to finance their products. That's the thing that kind of upsets me. Imagine if it said take a loan. (laughs) To pay for this T-shirt you're buying. Yeah, that's right. 
people are like, oh, I won't do that. But buy now, pay later. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's right. Or to your point <laughs> on the veneers, it's like, it. yes, it's 0% technically. But without this, it would be a lot less. Like, it's it, we're all just building in the financing cost and hiding it, right? Exactly. But exactly. Because the dentist is now accepting sixteen thousand dollars of revenue instead of twenty. And you know, that's ultimately the cost that the borrower is bearing is that four thousand dollars for financing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So interesting. I like that we just broke that down. That makes me happy. Yeah. And then, you know, another interesting example too that we provided a credit facility for. It's a lender that lends to students who are going to coding boot camp. Huh. So if you go and do a 12-month program to become a software engineer or a coder, uh, you you know would pay $10,000 a year. So this lender goes in and says, you know, hey, you can pay that over 12 months. And they went to the, all the schools and the schools say, great, we'll take $8,000 today to guarantee that we're getting paid our tuition. And it allows more students to do it because they can finance it and we capture more clients. So it's a win for everyone. And again, this is a business that is already has a 20% uh, buffer built in on day one. And um, so, you know, we provided financing to that business. And this is actually one of my favorite deals we did because it's not simply an aggregation credit facility where imagine we give them a credit facility, they make loans, the loans have to pay off to pay us off, or they have to refinance our facility with a bigger bank or, you know, Aries down the road. Um, this model is different that the education uh, institution used or the education lender used is where they actually sell all of their loans off their balance sheet within a week or two of originating them. So we uh, only held those loans for a week or two and yeah. then they cycle. It's called a seasoning facility. So it's it's a uh, it's a pretty cool model. And, you know, for that one, uh, you know, Goldman, I think, was on the other side buying the loans from them. Um, but we seasoned them for a few weeks because of this really particular tax law. And I know you're nerdy, Bill, so I know you will love this. I do like this. Um, but there is... Because I like to <laughs> figure out like why do these opportunities exist? And this tax law is the exist. reason. Yes, you're going to love this. So if, if Goldman went and bought these loans at origination from this lender on day one, they would be taxed as an operating company, like a lender. They're mm. an operating business that they're in the business of making loans. If they buy these assets two weeks after origination, they're taxed as if they're buying an asset, not hmm. not making loans as an operating company. It's about half the tax rate. Yeah. And so essentially all of these originating, you know, originator lenders have said, you know, if we're going to be selling our loans off balance sheet, we have to be holding them and we have to have capital to do it. And so for most of these lenders, that seasoning capital that we, peer, we provide it, that seasoning capital is simply an operational um, tool for them. Like they need that to hold the loans before they sell them. It's part of their operations. It's not where they're making money. Imagine if you're aggregating these loans over 12 months as a lender and then paying us off as those loans pay off. Your spread between what the borrower is paying you and you're paying peer is how you make your money. For these lenders that sell all their loans off balance sheet, they make their money really on the origination points and then on servicing the pools over time. And that interim capital that they're having these loans on for two weeks, it's just that cost is pretty inconsequential. And so when people are LPs or prospective LPs ask me, well, how are you able to you know, target and charge these high double digit rates to these lenders? And I say, because it's just an operating cost and it's very minimal compared to the, you know, compared to the points that they're making mm -hmm. up front on these loans, like two weeks of interest 
is not, you know, it, it's inconsequential. Yeah. And so the way that we win these deals is by being operationally friendly to the business. Uh, and the way that we do that is by you know, making every credit facility we do unique to the underlying borrower. Like all of these, all of these big funds come out with, here's our credit facility product for specialty finance. Here's the term sheet, make it work for your business. Hmm. We go in and we say, hey, how does your business run? Which funding account should we be sweeping from? Which day are you sending the collateral reports to, the, um, to Goldman when they're buying their loans? Why don't we put our reporting on the same day? Just send the report twice. Like we try to really fit into their operations so that they're not creating new data for us if there's already a source data that we can be plugging into. A, it reduces risk for us. Uh, B, it reduces operational burden for them. And ultimately we're told time and time again that our term sheets are the most expensive, but often we win these deals because uh, of our operational ease of use and really trying to like get in and understand their business. Hmm. So, and I think it comes from my operator background because that's you know I was an operator before I started investing. Let me uh, let me just like recycle what you just said to me to make sure that it got in my head. So, <laughs> uh, there is a lender that you are providing credit to. That lender is going to originate a series of loans and syndicate it out to the market. The market, uh, Goldman is the buyer. They can't buy immediately because then they're an opco and they'd rather have the taxes at the asset level. So so you're able to come in and basically like the lender's business is to get syndication points, right? So they'll charge 30 basis points on the entire portfolio or something as a fee. And then they get a one or 2% servicing fee, whatever the terms are. And you are giving them two weeks of credit. And because that two weeks of credit is pretty minimal in the overall cost of say a 36 month loan or something like that. It gets them to the point that they need to get to, and then they sell the loan. So you're funding their business. And the reason they're willing to pay you is that you actually really care about what they need and you're structuring the product in the way that they need it to be structured. Is that like a fair summary of what you just told me? Beautiful. And I'll add one thing. Um, you know, we, we make it what they need it and uh, it allows them to scale and uh, sell more loans because they're not dealing with all this operational burden and headache of, of managing our credit facility. I you like know, They're that. like, hey, it's just sliding right into our operations. It's really easy. We can sell twice as many loans. We can process twice as many with the same headcount we have. You know, other credit facilities, when you take that on as a lender, you may have to hire someone who, whose only job is to run that credit facility day in, day out, because it's completely outside of your operational ecosystem. Um, we do a tremendous amount of work up front where, you know, we'll sit in, we'll get um, read-only access to their current CRM, like their actual CRM that they're using. We'll get read-only access. We can scrape uh, data for our own borrowing bases. And again, think about it. Like we're in there with the original, um, we're in there with actual source data instead of what someone is regurgitating into our format. Um, that's just like one example of how I think we protect our investors um, and also make it easier for our lenders. And well, again, that just comes because I was an operator trying to jam the square peg of a credit facility into my round hole of a business. Yeah. And it was just, you know, banging heads against the wall, getting everything to work. No, it makes perfect sense. Because then if you're if you're willing to to work with them, to your point, like 
yes, you may pay a little bit more interest for a, an additional week, but maybe you don't need to hire somebody that would have cost you 80 to 100 grand a year all in or whatever just to manage your credit facilities and all your reporting requirements. Yeah, you know, or it frees up time. You know, say someone was managing a credit facility before, it frees up their operational ability to go, um, you know, process more loans. So it can, you know, not only save costs, but also allow for expansion. Um, you know, and then that's the other thing. So we, we usually start with a smaller credit facility and then scale up with our originator over time. So we like to be with them through the growth, uh, you know, life cycle. So, you know, we can write a credit facility as small as $5 million and as big as $40 million. That's, those are our kind of bands in terms of sizing. And we've stayed with lenders where we start with five all the way until they graduate to being a $40 million um, you know, type credit user. And for us, uh, that again, reduces risk because we've seen this business for a number of years and uh, we're able to kind of grow over the life cycle with them. And that's another competitive advantage. So you, know, some, you, you could use a smaller firm and pay a lower interest rate you know, or you could get plugged in with us where you have the wherewithal to scale and we can reduce interest rate a little bit as you scale and prove out your credit quality. How do you uh, how do you think through the idea of like how these loans will perform in a downturn? We haven't had like a real bad credit cycle in a very long time. So I, I wonder, you know, how do you test what a down credit cycle might look like the the only the only peak we got at one the government came in and bailed most people out so uh exactly it's kind of hard to model i would think yeah so we try our best and we model every which way to sunday so every portfolio we buy or every uh originator we finance uh, we take those loans and we stress the heck out of them at the loan level so imagine uh we're lending you know, imagine we are uh, working with that uh, patient finance lender. We would look at that cohort of borrowers, which is, it was a really high prime uh, cohort. So we stress every portfolio. I like to use examples because it brings our kind of strategy and how we do things to life. So as we talked about, there's that dental veneer example and the borrower is a super prime borrower with a high FICO score and high income. We look back over you know, whatever billions of dollars of data sets that we have on consumer credit. You can look, up, look at credit card charge-offs. Um, there's other data, but you know, we really like to use credit card receivables. That's kind of you know, some of the best data that we have to understand consumer behavior over long periods of time. So if you look back at the Great Financial uh, Recession and you look at this high prime borrower, they actually had the highest increase in baseline defaults of any consumer segment. Huh. Think about this. If you are a subprime borrower and you're defaulting at a 20% rate, right? The whole group of subprime borrowers with low income, low FICO, they default about 20% of the time. During the recession, that, you know, you stressed that at about, mm, it was like 1.25x is kind of how that increased by, you know, 20, 25%. So you went from 20 um, up to like 25 ish. So if you look at the high prime borrower, they're defaulting at sub 1%. Those defaults increase to about three or 4% for the worst quarter of the financial recession. Okay. And it only lasted a quarter at that elevated level. So if you're modeling a really big default scenario for a high prime borrower uh, in the consumer segment, you should be stressing your baseline default expectations by three to four X. You know, and you know, and, and again, if you're um, hmm. stressing your default expectations, 
you can stress them over the whole life of a loan. Like if it's a 12 month loan, you could stress your expected defaults for the entire time. That would be really, really conservative because again, the highest peak in that the highest peak in that uh, expected default stress during the Great Recession only lasted a quarter. Yeah. But again, you can apply it to the whole portfolio. So those are the what types about of subprime? data. What do they normally do? I've heard they're more resilient because they're more used to living on the edge. Way more resilient. So in a typical downturn, the subprime borrower performs great. And so if you're building a recession-proof type of uh, portfolio, subprime consumer, as long as you really understand those default rates and you really understand how they behave, uh, it can actually be a pretty decent place to be investing. Um, you know, it's it, got the some COVID stink on was, it. That's the only problem. It does, and the COVID crisis was a very uh, unique example that showed you know that cohort really struggled because they were hourly workers working in the service industries, um, working at hair salons, working at you know any of the service like hourly service jobs, um, and that that cohort got hit pretty hard. And so subprime, you know, fortunately performed fine through COVID because of the stimulus, but without the stimulus, it could have been uh, a, a pretty big bloodbath. So that gets down to my philosophy. Like, should we be investing all of our capital into subprime consumer or prime consumer? And how should we be pricing it? You know, I don't think there's any, we don't think there's a bad band of credit to invest in, but there's bad pricing. So if you're, if you're buying that credit at the right price, even in really big default stress scenarios, you're going to be okay. Um, but the way that I view it is diversification, diversification, diversification. That is the best way to protect around the unknown. Like you said, are interest rates going to go negative? Who knows? Are all hourly workers going to lose their jobs and be unemployed overnight because of a virus? Who saw that coming? Yeah. And so you would normally have said invest in subprime consumer for a downturn because that's a great place. But the COVID crisis without stimulus, that would have been a really challenging segment to be invested in. Yeah. And so for us, you know, our biggest protection against that is diversifying. So we don't like any part of our portfolio to be kind of more than 10% of our holdings. And that's across consumer, small business, and real estate debt. So I don't even know if I gave our pitch. I think I did briefly at the beginning well, of what again. we do. Okay. Well, we invest in consumer, small business, and real estate debt, and we buy it in the secondary market, and we lend against it at the originator level via credit facilities or seasoning facilities. And so for us, we diversify across those three bands. So if consumer was hit really hard in any sort of downturn, there's some unique dynamics, well, maybe small business and maybe real estate would be more resilient. Um, and then within all three of those uh, buckets, you have different credit spectrums. Like you said, you have high prime, you have really subprime, um, and you have collateralized loans like equipment and uncollateralized general, um, you know, unsecured consumer loans. So there's this vast swath of ability for us to diversify, and that's my only insurance, you know, on this fund is or on this investment strategy is simply diversifying across. Um, you know, asset type and credit type and credit quality. How do you uh, how do you follow that many different markets um, and make sure that you know you understand where the right pricing is at any given time? Because that's that's a lot of different markets to cover. It really is, and I think the first way we do it is by kind of splitting it off the top between my partner and I. So Connor New is the chief investment officer of our firm. And uh, he is a consumer and small business credit expert. Uh, he ran a fund before this that had purchased over half a billion dollars worth of consumer and small business loans, where he had underwritten over $20 billion of these loans. Um, and so for him, his whole 
uh, day in, day out is building credit models and stressing them around these cohorts of consumers and small businesses. So just off the top, that's Connor, and then I take the real estate side. So at least there are two brains starting from the top. Yeah. Um, but there's still a lot to unpack underneath everything. The one thing I'll say is if you look at all these niche segments, so if you look at um, equipment loans, at the end of the day, an equipment loan is really a con- is really a small business loan. And we have a lot of SBA data that goes back you know, a decent number of decades um, on how small businesses perform during different environments. And so we can boil that loan down to how will this small business be able to pay us off? And that's your first pricing level is, okay, let's just look at it like a general small business loan. Okay, if that bid won't clear and we can't buy it just off that pricing, let's get more specific. Okay, um, let's look at, you know, the last, I don't know, I don't know, $2 billion worth of equipment loans that we've seen data tapes and see what are residual values and what what have residuals been on collections? Um, we really can rely on special servicers for that. So if there's a loan servicer that all they do is service equipment loans and they've been servicing you know, billions and billions a year, we can ask like, hey, we'll give you this portfolio to service if you can help us understand uh, what residual mm-hmm. values are tractors selling at right now. Yeah. And okay, maybe we can price a little bit of uh, value into the collateral on this portfolio of small business loans. Maybe we can. And so that's how we build pricing is from the bare level of general small business or general consumer. And then you can kind of layer in uh, more specificity, if you will. But if we can't get more specific, like say it's a it's a firm that only lends against dental x-ray machines and somehow we don't have a good data set on that, you know, maybe we'll just have to put in a bid as if there's as if we're assigning no value to that collateral. As if it's just a pure unsecured small business loan. Yeah, and then the and collateral is bid, your margin of safety. Yeah, and if that bid clears at a price that we're comfortable with no collateral behind it, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Like any collections are just gravy. So that that's how we deal with it. You know, either we are 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 super specific and have tons of data behind it and we can get very specific with the bid, and if we can't, we have to go to the lowest common denominator of where we have certainty and that's where the bid starts. Interesting. In, Does um, that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. In uh, when I was at the bank, we always used to think about probability default, exposure at default, and loss given default. Right. So if you're not assigning uh, any collateral value, then your loss given default is probably overly conservative in your underwriting, and therefore your realized outcome is probably better. Can you answer that question for me? You were much more eloquent than I was. I don't that know was, about that all that. Right. That's, I, I, uh, that's exactly what I was trying to say, but well, in a uh, no. I think you explained it to people, and it. I took it to banking terms. <laughs> I really like what you. Uh, I, like I like it. how you think about stuff, and I, I like um, how you said that you structure the facilities uh, to, to um, like match what the client needs. When I was at the bank, I, I I work for this guy, Mark Pressler. Mark, I hope you listen. If you do, what's up? Um, and like, he said something to me that I, I'm not sure if other people tried to say it to me or if, you know, I just needed to hear it from him. I don't know. But he was like, look, your job as a banker fundamentally is to make the equity holders as rich as possible while protecting the bank's capital. And in order to do that, you need to think about like, what do these people need to accomplish how can we protect our capital and how can we give them as much as possible? And I just always, um, I always liked how he put that because I really felt like it framed the job very well. Um, and I, I think um, it's super cool to talk to you 
because I think you're you're doing that in a um, I, I don't want to say less competitive market because I don't think that that's fair. I think all markets are competitive, but I like the niche that it sounds like you're carving for yourself. It's it's a very cool uh, you know thing that you're doing. Yeah, and I recognize it is a very small corner of the world, um, but I know it really well. And like you said, with the bank, okay, let's make the equity investors as wealthy as possible while protecting the bank's deposit capital. Like for me, principal preservation of LP capital is number one. And so heading into any sort of transaction, like that's at the forefront of what I'm what I'm thinking about and what I'm doing. Um, and you know, it's this, it's this massive responsibility that I hold uh, with such regard, and you know, so humbled that. You know, folks uh, have chosen us to 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 be putting their their dollars to work, um, and being in this niche corner of the world, like I can say with a lot of comfort and certainty, like I really understand what I'm investing in, you know, better than you know a very lot of people. And you know, although we don't uh, cover like like yes, we cover a lot of asset types, um, but the business models that these companies are running, the people, it's a very um, it's a very incestuous industry where uh, the head of capital markets at one of the firms we used to lend to is now running a different company that we're lending to. Uh, a fund manager that's owning a loan of portfolios um, used to actually be the president of a lender two years ago that now we're buying those loans he originated from a fund that she's running on Wall hmm. Street. Like it's a very, it's probably like 200 or 300 really big players in the space that are moving a lot of the dollars, starting a lot of the companies. Um, and because we know those people inside and out have seen their his historical work, have transacted with them in other capacities, uh, it gives me so much comfort in that principal preservation first, where in a you know in any financial industry, I think some of the you know the biggest risks you can identify are fraud. And as long you know, if you can get to if you can get to be working with people that you've known that you've seen transact in ethical ways historically, um, you know that can take some of that uh, headline, or it can reduce some of that uh, headline concern. So it's a it's a big job, and you know I carry it again, like I said, with a lot of responsibility and regard. Um, but you know we we know we know this corner of the world really well, and it's our small our small niche place that we invest in, and. Uh, you know, we, we know it well. Well, the nice thing about credit is it's a deep enough market that uh, you can make some decent money in some good niches. How yeah, uh, how do yeah. you think about being capacity constrained and whether or not you will be and how much you can expand? And I don't know, how much do you yeah, so want to expand? I'm running this damn podcast. The amount of time I spend on administrative stuff, I'm not sure I even <laughs> like it. So I'd imagine yeah. you're pretty busy day to day running the operations. Yeah, so it's you know it's a busy job. Uh, we're scaling infrastructure with our growth. Uh, we just put a new investment analyst in place last quarter who's doing fantastic. If you're listening, Kevin, we appreciate you and you're awesome. Um, and that's increased you know my bandwidth a lot. You know he's taken off um, you know certain organiz deal organization um, parts and you know running data rooms and uh, checking initial files and. Um, that's already expanded my bandwidth. So, you know, we're in this kind of infrastructure scaling um, you know, mode right now while the business is scaling uh, quite significantly. Like we are twice the size uh, that, you know, than we were a year ago. Um, and, you know, the, the, the pace of growth continues to increase, which is really exciting. And we do think about capacity 
a lot. Uh, this specific strategy where we're buying loans in the secondary market or writing credit facilities to these smaller niche originators, it does cap out. You know, this strategy is probably 125 to 150 million uh, to be hitting our target yields and duration profile. You know, we look to kind of the next phase of this business where we probably will extend duration a little bit in some sort of other strategy, whether that's taking duration out 24 months to or 36 months um, and working with more mature counterparts. Uh, it could make a lot of sense to still work with the same lender ecosystem, but be that final refinance piece for them. So right now we get refinanced out with like an Aries or Nomura or you know Victory Park, uh, and they do that $50 million credit facility and they refinance us. And so that that type of strategy is a $500 million strategy. And we have the pipeline of deals where we have credit history of a few years. We've been underwriting and working with the management teams. So it, it really could be a great next evolution for the firm. It is not a near-term objective, um, but it is in early stages of thinking about, you know, how do we scale our operating business? And, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. The current strategy does cap out. And it's great. It's nichey. It's yieldy. Uh, investors love it, and it was a great place to start. And you know, maybe this next uh, strategy of, of those larger deals with a bit more duration um, might be the next evolution. We'll see. Yeah. Well, uh, the nice thing about knowing a strategy that can, del- well, potentially deliver double-digit returns is uh, once you have enough personal wealth, it doesn't really matter if it caps out because uh, if you get capped out of your personal wealth, you're doing pretty well. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it feels it still feels very much like we're in builds, you know, building mode and that sort of thing. But um, it will be it will be a big milestone the day that we have to to close that or close that strategy to new capital. We will be taking the, t- the team to a Kings game or you know, doing something fun for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what a, when you said that like Aries will refinance you out, what does that look like? Because it seems to me that, uh, your method of re like your, so your primary source of repayment is just the credit profile paying you back. Right. Uh, I, I would think about a cash flow from operations in a business. Um, but then your so is your secondary source of repayment, uh, getting refied by somebody like Aries. Is that how you think about it? Yeah. You know, oftentimes if our lenders are scaling, um, you know, maybe it's a lender that's using our capital for seasoning. So they're taking our capital for two weeks at a time. Maybe they're turning it twice a month. So they have a $10 million facility with us. They turn it twice. That's 20 million times 12 months. That would make them like a $250 million a year lender. So we can provide that 10 million. If they want to become a billion dollar lender, they're going to have to go refinance us out with Aries or okay, as they grow as they grow and yeah so that would be you know and and so some some uh firms don't scale like they're not in growth mode and we can just be their partner and they either you know continue paying their interest or they pay us off um you know over time if they want to wind down the business or stop the strategy but yeah it's it's mostly refinancing is is what i would say is a repayment strategy that makes sense to me um Mm -hmm. what uh I mean, how has growing, you've, you've now been at this for five years, right? What was yes. it like? You open the door, you've left your job, and you're starting this business. I mean, what has that process been like? How old were you when you started? Am I allowed to ask you that? Is that an insensitive question? Oh, too funny. You know, my answer to that usually is that a woman never tells her age. I, well, this is why I'm so, asking. Um, 
Yeah, <laughs> too funny. But yeah, so I started, I, I left my that firm that I was with, the originator. And, you know, we were really fortunate when leaving. We had a decent investor base or, you know, a decent pool of folks that were um, pretty excited about what we were doing. We went around and talked to our industry contacts and said, hey, we're going to start a fund that's you know buying in the secondary market and also providing credit facilities. And we had a lot of initial support and excitement uh, from lots of industry, uh, from lots of industry participants. And so we... Uh, you know, when we started, it was like we had a few big deals that uh, were offered very early on. You know, there was one large institution who wanted to give us $50 million, but take 30% equity in the operating company. And I mean, starting your fund or you know, any investment strategy with $50 million really gets you off the ground and puts you on the map right away. And, you know, I, I, as I shared earlier, like I'm an entrepreneur through and through. Uh, I like building. I like uh, following my own lead and, you know, really being able to uh, build something in the way in which I want to. And, as, and as, if you take on a 30 percent equity partner that is a smart institution, um, that ability to actually run your firm independently yeah, you goes away. Up a bit. You give that up and you have another boss again. So you left and you took on all this risk. And yes, you're going to get more economics because you own 70% of the pie now instead of being an employee, but you still answer to someone. And that eliminates your ability to steer the ship in the way you think best because you know there's someone else um, kind of forcing you to make decisions in the way that they would want. So we looked at that you know really closely and we were very excited and this partner if you're listening you we i mean they're fantastic and they would have been <laughs> such best, a great operating but partner also you're not no, getting they really my they stuff. really would have but um but we ended up not taking the offer and i'm so grateful we didn't it was you know the right choice and we built the firm independently and you know it it was it took a lot longer to get get to the same point that we would have started at um, but the firm is entirely ours and entirely our vision and uh, we get to run it in that way. And I think, you know, I think that means a lot for the long run. Like this business is a 30 year business for me and my partner. We, uh, we see it as that. And if not, a, you know, a legacy generational business where we build out the firm and after we go, there are still people investing capital in a, in a, you know, in a, in a very great fiduciary capacity. So we, you know, keeping it our culture and true to who we are was very important to us. Like things like having a no asshole policy is really fantastic in finance. And it's really hard to keep that if you have a boss. Like yeah. you want to work with where you're making the most money. And for us, um, we've like truly instituted that policy from time to time. And we've left money on the table because it was true to our value and kind of true to, true to what we were trying to build for the long run. Yeah, life's so. much better with that kind of a policy. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Assholes. I have, not I have worth a few the time. stories there. I mean, you know, you got to have the yeah. freedom to say that. But like, once you can have the freedom to say that, I think that's a pretty important thing to be able to flex. Yeah, and for the team to protect our employees, and you know, to not be having to interface with folks who aren't you know great to work with and respectful and kind. Like that's just um, like we also take a lot of pride in building a place that people want to work. Uh, our, you know, we, we fire, or excuse me, we hire very slow. And, you know, we have the thought that if someone's not fitting culture, we can let them go quickly. Um, we fortunately, we have a very small team today. It's only four of us. Um, but we, uh, but we uh, hold that, um, that ethos pretty dear, dear to our heart. I think that's, uh, you know, theoretically, since I, I'm running an operation of one and a couple outsourced mm -hmm. people right now, uh, I can't speak to it as well as I'd like to, but uh, I do think that firing 
uh, or letting people go, depending on how you want to say it, quickly is uh, probably pretty smart because, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like toxic, well, it, things get toxic when things get stale, I think. And things get stale when, when things aren't, when people aren't fitting, right? So to be able to pivot and not get caught up in like this, well, it took so long to hire this person or whatever, it makes a lot of sense. How do you manage, uh, like, what makes a good partnership? How do you have a partner that uh, you can, you know, you said this is going to be a 30-year business for us. Uh, I sort of view partnership as like a work marriage. How do you uh, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that that works, you know, and that you're on the same page? Yeah, so Connor and I, we spent probably six months or maybe nine months uh, working together, deciding if starting peer was the right decision before we did it. So some people call that co-founder dating, where you talk through your vision for the firm over and over again. You interview close people in their life, people from their spouses all the way to prior employees. Um, You know, you really, you know, understand this person inside and out because, you know, we didn't have a history of being co-employees or working at the same firm for 10 years and really getting to see how each other worked. Um, You know, we had only known each other's industry contacts, you know, sat across the table trying to do deals before. Um, so I had good insight into how he conducted himself. You know, he had a fantastic reputation across the industry as a really good person, very intellectual, which I can confirm is the case. Um, but actually going in and confirming all of that uh, was a long process for us. And, you know, I, I was an entrepreneur before this. Um, you know, I ran a business and then I went and was an investment banker and then I helped start two companies. And I know... I had known, you know, what that kind of partnership is and how long it can be and how hard it could be if it's not the right fit. So we took a long time up front. That's what I say is put in the work up front to figure out if this is the right partnership. Um, don't try to figure it out after the fact. So we spent a lot of time on it up front. Um, and then, you know, I think these are very obvious things, but I think open communication, number one. So we over communicate. And then number two is the uh, principle of positive presumption. So I always grant Connor the principle of positive presumption. I think I'm going to like this. Yeah. So I, if for some reason I can't get a hold of Connor in the morning and we're trying to get a deal closed or something, in my head, the first thing I think is, oh my gosh, something must be going on with his kids. I hope everything's okay. Not, oh, you know, he must be sleeping in and relaxing today. Wow, he's not taking work seriously this week. Like, it's a complete different mindset. And you earn the principle of positive presumption between people. You earn that over time is typically how it happens because you you always are on your commitments. You're always, you know, truthful and and that sort of thing. But um, we just grant it from day one, every scenario, you know. And then I think the... The third thing on top of that is shouting our mistakes. So if I made a mistake or I didn't handle a deal right, or I forgot to send something that I was planning to follow up on, it's an immediate phone call or we use Slack a lot, Slack to Connor, I messed this thing up. Wow, okay, here's how I wanna plan, here's how I wanna fix it. You know, I think we can get it in by the deadline anyway. I'm gonna make two calls, do you have any ideas? Like absolutely shout your mistakes. And if you're shouting your mistakes, then your partner assumes that everything else that's going on is yeah, going on going great well. and you're doing, you know, everything's going well. Huh. So I think that's how you preserve the, the principle of positive presumption. I like that. Um, I, yeah. I had an issue on this podcast. Uh, the There's a man that helps me, Matthew Passy. Shout out to you, Matthew. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we uh, as a team like leaned heavily into audio and uh, the, the videos have started to roll out. Well, 
some of the audio edits uh, didn't quite make it to video. So no. for for instance, uh, there is one episode that uh, the kids were making a fair amount of background noise. Mm. And uh, my guest, Chris Bloomstrand, uh, he uh, he was a total pro. I didn't realize that my mute button wasn't on. And I'm no. like yelling to the kids. I'm like, <laughs> go away. <laughs> and you can hear it in the in the video for the YouTube, you know. <laughs> Uh, and, and Matthew, uh, he, he wrote me this weekend and he's like, you know, I just want you to know that I, I was watching one of these videos for editing. And I think that people may hear your kids, you know, you, they may hear you tell your kids to shut up. And uh, I said, you know, on part of me is like, I, I actually cracked up when he told me that, but, um, you know, for him to for him to care enough to say that to me is because I, I, I yeah. like just don't have enough time to check all these things. You know, I got the audio yeah, format, the yeah. video like I'd be doing it all day. So for him to say, hey, this was an issue like I, I have mad respect for that. And to your point, if he's saying that about that issue to me, then I'm not worried that other things aren't getting done. Like I know they're getting done. Um, exactly. And the, the product speaks for itself that, that things are going mostly well. But that was kind of a funny blooper to keep in. <laughs> so we're, we're editing now. We're going video first. And then the audio portion <laughs> will sort of take care of itself. I love it. Ooh, I thought of one other useful tip. If anyone is in that co-founder dating phase where you're figuring out if someone is a good business partner for you, this was not something that I recognized before we partnered, but looking back is why it's been such a successful partnership for these five years, um, is that we actually have similar risk tolerances. Hmm. So we have we have vastly different skill sets. We like to do very different things, which I think is just helpful from a day-to-day standpoint. Like I love meeting with investors. I love doing podcasts. I, you know, I like um, going and doing, yeah, speaking on panels. Um, Connor really loves doing the deep analytical work on certain credit books that we look at. And, you know, it's great that I can send him something and be like, hey, I'm heading off for um, for this meeting. I'm working on negotiating the structure of this deal. Can you look at the credit while I go figure out what terms we're going to do? Um, and we're both the happiest doing each different task. So that works out great. But we both have very similar risk tolerances. So we come at problems thinking in very different ways and bringing up different problems that we see with something or risks that we see. And then we can sit there and say, okay, we've identified all this big universe of risks and problems. Here's how we're going to mitigate them. Do we want to move forward or not? And if you all see the same facts and you brought up this big universe and you have very different risk tolerances, your answer is most of the time are going to be different on what you do for a business if you move forward with something or not. And for us, um, because of that similar risk tolerance, we look at you know a broad set of, of a variety of viewpoints between the two of us and often are coming to the same conclusion. In situations where we actually fall on different sides of the fence, it's usually a no. You know, it's usually yeah, like, hey, sense. if we're both not in on this, it's a no. Um, unless unless it fall, you know, unless there's a decision that falls more in one of our areas of expertise we would probably defer to the other saying, I know that you have more expertise. If you're landing on a different side, I trust that that's the right way to go. So I think, I guess I'm now identifying another thing besides similar risk tolerance is having tremendous respect for your business partner. And if you don't really respect and revere that person's abilities and talents, 
again, the, you know, the partnership will, I think, deteriorate over time. You know, each other won't feel valued or you won't have enough conviction in your partner to be making the right choices. So I think that respect, um, admiration of their abilities and skills uh, is, is also important. I wonder if this is why um, family businesses end up after generations having some problems. I ran a, uh, a, a pathetic excuse for a flooring company for a little while once upon a time. <laughs> And um, Nick would be so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was uh, it was interesting. My my um, my business partner was my best friend uh, for a mm. long time. But uh, there were a number of I, I think he and I could do something. I don't think we would do something again, but I think we could do something in the right area. I think that was the wrong place and the wrong partnership. But it almost ruined our friendship. It was uh, it was terrible, oh. but you know we got through mm. it. Thankfully, another friend said, "Stop being idiots." So yeah. we kind of needed that. But yeah. you know, it can go when it goes south. It it sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so far so good, Connor. If you're listening to this, we got this. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't. I uh, I mean, I've seen how you two interact. I think it. I think uh, it's it's very admirable. That's why I wanted to ask you about it because uh, when you talked about them in the past and when you've talked about your partnership, uh, it's very clear that um, you know it works well. How was it? I mean, you're a new mother, and uh, 2020 was pretty. I would say uh, I I don't jarring, right? Uh, that's that's a lot to go through in the last 18 months as as business partners. How's life been over that time? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, it's, I mean, it's, I, I feel so fortunate that the last year and a half has actually been you know, pretty great for us as a firm. You know, we fortunately, you know, had a great year of performance and a great year of, you know, the business growing and, um, you know, expanding our infrastructure and team. And so for us, you know, I know there were so, so many hard times for so many people and family tragedies with health and business tragedies with closures and, you know, we have close friends who own big restaurant groups and that was devastating for their family businesses. And so, you know, I just feel so lucky that we could do everything remote. You know, we didn't have disruption to our business. We grew to be twice the size. Um, so I think if work hadn't, if the business hadn't have been doing so well, it would have been a really challenging time for me. Um, it was challenging enough becoming a new mom. I mean, figuring out, um, that balance of you know raising my kids, going to the office, running this company, you know, still trying to achieve my dreams, um, is the toughest balance in the world. Like the work-life balance comment is a joke. They are never going to balance it. It's always like one thing's crashing into another, and everything's flying every which way. There's no like elegant way to do this at all. I mean, if someone's figured it out, but Jillian, please find not, me on Twitter. That's not what the books tell me, and what the <laughs> self-help gurus tell me. <laughs> Please DM me on Twitter and tell me if you figured it out. Any other moms out there running companies, because it is crazy and amazing. And I feel, you know, some days, you know, where I feel like I'm just not being enough of a mom. I'm so grateful that I'm building my business and I can show Margot when she's old enough to understand, like, this is what I work on. This is, you know, mommy uses her brain to think of really hard problems and solve them and build something that matters. And um, I just can't wait to make her really proud. So I try to lean on that if I'm feeling like I'm, you know, being a failure mom. Um, yeah, if the business, I, if I 
wasn't able to get to enough things that day because I was spending more time with my daughter. I'm just grateful Connor's there. He picks up the slack. That's great. Yeah. That's also the amazing part about having a partner. Um, like being a solo founder would be really hard. I look back, I'm so grateful I'm not a solo founder running this business. I mean, that's the only way to do it as a new mom. I, any solo founder, females, moms out there, wow. I have huge, massive kudos to you. That's phenomenal. Um, because I trust Connor fully with decisions of our firm. And so if there ever was a day where I couldn't step in and spend enough time on something, you know, thank goodness there's someone there as my equal to, to handle it. Um, so thank you, Connor. I mean, it was he, he had to step up in a big way this year. Um, be, while I was figuring out uh, how, how to be that new mom. I mean, I think the first six months are very demanding on the mother. You know, obviously things like breastfeeding, being in physical proximity to the baby is really critical to health for mom and baby um, and all of those, you know, sorts of um, like biological needs and emotional needs. And uh, now being on that kind of nine month mark, um, I say the clouds are lifting and I can see, <laughs> can see the blue sky and you know, I'm, um, it's not uh, such madness around here, but I hear that as soon as I start feeling that way, it's gonna change and become chaos next week. But um, yeah, this week feels pretty sane. Different. Like I'm feeling pretty sane today, which is I like and the, I like the nine month age. Is she walking yeah. around? Is she toddling? She, she hasn't started yet. I mean, like, um, but you know, tries. when they like hang on stuff and like whatever. Oh, yeah. She's doing that whole like the monkey business, just grabbing everything, climbing as best she can. It's so cute. Um, uh, I thought yeah, that but she's I, not I like that enough. age. I was, um, yeah. when, uh, when my first was born, the night he was born, I'll never forget. Like, him opening his eyes is the most incredible thing that I will ever see in my entire life. And I'm convinced that even if I get dementia, I'll still be able to see that. Um, <laughs> but, like, after that, uh, it was not the easiest uh, thing for me to go through. And I, I tell guys this, and I don't say it uh, to be... Um, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer about a situation, but like, I really felt like I didn't have a place in my own home for a while because my kid was with my wife and my wife was, uh, I, I think she had a tough time after the first, uh, kid and it was definitely really hard on her. Um, like the birth was really hard. We were in, um, took like 16 hours and we were in the ER and a number mm. of times, uh, his heart rate had dropped and it was mm. just tough. And then, uh, I don't know, I didn't feel like uh, I even had like a, a family really for five months or so. Mm -hmm. uh, I just kind of felt like I was the person roaming around my own house. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's maybe not totally true, but that was the feeling, right? Um, yeah. But then like once he got older and um, I don't know, then the bond formed and now it's been, now I've got three and it's mm -hmm. fucking madness <laughs> over <laughs> here, but I wouldn't give it up for anything. I, it's my favorite thing in the mm -hmm. world. I think that's a common theme with um, with pretty much every dad and mom at the beginning. Like the mom feels like she's doing everything right. No one can possibly help in the way that a mom needs. I mean, you are the food source, the life source of this child, and the dad like the dad physically can't provide that. It's just you know it's just not possible. And so I think it's a constant thing. You know, the dad's feeling like not valued, and oh, I'm like it's hard. I, I can't contribute in the way I want to. Um, and kind of left out almost between the mother and baby bond. And then the mom's going, can someone please help? Can someone, you know, I all everything's on me. Yeah. And so that was my experience was my husband is the most involved in the world. I mean, he it, like you couldn't ask for a better husband. He was phenomenal. 
And even so, again, like he couldn't contribute. Um, he couldn't substitute for me in those first six months uh, because I'm simply the mom. Like there's a biological uh, you know, connection there between the mom and baby and breastfeeding. And, um, you know, she, she just wanted me because she had known me. You know, she'd been in my belly for nine months, hearing my voice, smelling me, uh, being a part of my body. And so it takes some time outside outside when they're in the in the world to, to get to know daddy and and um, really find that same bond. But we're at nine months and she's now in a phase where she actually prefers Shane to me. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. it hurts my ego and hurts my heart. I'm like, do you remember those six months? I get it. Mm, but I hear that changes week to week too. I got a four year old that won't even talk to me sometimes. So I'm like, oh. screw you, man. I'm I'm like out oh. here keeping food on your table and oh. so oh yeah. well. It's oh, fine. I know. Uh, you know what I th- what I think is um, it's an interesting point in your life. You've got like a this business that's your baby. You've got an actual baby, and then you had mentioned like that you were, um, you know, that you were a little bit apprehensive to even tell people that you were pregnant because you were worried about performance. Um, you know, that's uh, that's a big year that you've had. So I'm glad you're you're through a lot of it, and it sounds like on the good side of a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, and on that topic, it was pretty wild that I wasn't seeing people in person. I was Zooming for you know all of 2020. And so clients, borrowers, um, you know, people just, a lot of people just didn't need to know or couldn't see that I was pregnant. So usually I see my clients in person and it would be impossible to hide that I'm pregnant. And, um, and so I wasn't, I was a little nervous, you know, frankly, I was quite nervous to shout that from the rooftops and say I'm pregnant and share that news. And um, it was scary and uh, looking back, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't really make it big in public on my Twitter or send it out in a client newsletter. Um, slowly, clients are finding out now when I'm catching up with people. Like, how's life? Oh, yeah, you know, my daughter and I did this, and um, you know, it wasn't an intentional hiding. But then it just, I, you know, there it didn't come up really. You know, I just it was the biggest thing in my life. But um, I, you know, I think there was some hesitation on sharing it, and uh, you know, it makes me sad thinking that. You know, I live in a world in a type of uh, business environment that, you know, might uh, not be as supportive of that. And, you know, that I think times are certainly changing and everyone has been so supportive. So that was, um, you know, a bit of legacy, uh, legacy concern, I think, from the way times used to be. Um, But finance, running a hedge fund and being an investor is a very male dominated space. I mean, like Moses and we we had talked about, like there were like, you know, a handful of women at reconvene and yeah. How many were there like three? I think maybe five. Okay. And he said, it's like a massive push for next year, but the challenges are just like, there aren't like, I run a hedge fund. I know five women in the country who are founder CEOs and doing the investing activity for their funds. Like in the, and I had to like hunt like really, really hard. So you know, it's scary when there's not others that look like you or others going before you. But one of my dear friends called me out when she found out I was pregnant and she said, you know, hey, like you need to be more public about being a mom, sharing your journey and think about the analysts an investment analyst who's reading your Twitter or learning about you and some on some podcasts. They should be able to look and see a mom who's working at the highest level of this industry, you know, doing great and having a family and being happy. And you know, without, without seeing those examples, how do you know that you can do it? Like some, you know, it's hard to know that or imagine it without envisioning it ahead of you. 
Um, like that was why I left investment banking, you know, or part of it. Like I, I wanted to be an operator again, but I also looked at the female, there was like two managing directors at the bank I was with. And I looked at the, you know, at their life and said, I just don't want that. I really want to be a mom. And I just didn't really see the path there to yeah. be both, uh, you know, to run the firm, be a managing director and be a mom. And, you know, I chose that I wanted to go figure out a way to, to, to do both, you know, to do both at the highest level. Like I didn't, yeah. So it's a, it's a tough, tough thing, but yes, I am a mom. Well, at least you get to set the parameters and... <laughs> around uh, your own firm, right? Where like investment banking, my perception of what I saw there is it's more of a FaceTime game than maybe uh, you can create in your own life. But I, I am not foolish yeah. enough. I know enough to know that when you think you own a business, your business owns you a lot of the time. <laughs> so, uh, oh yes. Well now this thing, you know, at first it felt like we were the business, like we were the business day in, day out. And it's really fascinating being at this place where we have a, a business like it. It's going to be running tomorrow, whether or not I'm in the office working. Yeah, like it's a cool. real company. And that was a big shift. You know, now we're, we're you know, we've run it institutionally from day one. But um, now it seems like it has its own, you know, its life as it's it's, uh, you know, it's its own living being that um, we get to build instead of just kind of it being like us. That's dope. It's no longer a hustle. It's like a legit a, a legit business it is yeah. which is so exciting <laughs> it's so exciting coming up on the five-year anniversary that's cool well i uh you know i look forward to seeing what years five through ten bring and i have a, a sense that uh as we connect over the years that it's going to be bigger and bigger and i look forward to watching oh bill thank you that means a lot um well, this was really fun. I hope we uh, we make this a regular thing, and if not on the podcast, at least at least just catching up. I'd love to. I I uh, and I look for any excuse I can have to get out to California. So I will uh, I will look you up when I'm out there, and we can have uh, a nice walk and some kale salad. I'm I'm down for that. I <laughs> love it. Love it. All right, cool. Where can people find you? So I am on Twitter at Jillian Murish M U R R I S H. And our website is www.peer, that's P-I-E-R, A as in asset, M as in management.com. Is the peer like uh, from Manhattan Beach or is it just a different peer? Manhattan Beach Peer. Yeah, that was that's our inspiration. a dope peer. Ugh. It is. Uh, looking up, what is it? Is it, uh, is it north at the airport? Right, if you're it on that pier? It is just south of the oh, airport. Oh, you're looking south. Oh, wait, oh, yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. No, if you're from... on the pier, you're looking north, right? You are looking north. Ugh. Yeah, sorry. I thought you meant Manhattan Beach. Yes. It's my favorite yep. view in the country. I love that. That's so pretty. Yeah, yeah we're so it fortunate is. to be well, here. Well, enjoy it. I hope you have a nice walk today and enjoy where you live. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. 
investment strategy discussed in this podcast is only suitable for eligible investors, and there is no guarantee that the investment strategy will be successful or meet its goals. Any discussion of targeted returns reflects the intended interest rates paid by borrowers and is not reflective of returns to investors. Also, nothing in this discussion should be regarded as a representation, warranty, or prediction that any specific transaction will reflect any particular performance or that it will achieve or is likely to achieve any particular result or that investors will be able to avoid losses, including total loss of their investment. Inherent in any investment is the potential for loss. This podcast discussion is solely for informational purposes only and is not a solicitation or any offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy.